you know, one of the things in China is that there have been great discipleship. I mean, um, when I was in Guangzhou, I sat in the church of um, uh, Pastor Lam. Pastor Lam was a large house church in the center of Guangzhou. He had been arrested, prison many years. He was a disciple of Wang Mingdao. Wow. And when I went to the church, in, in, it was in this little building, packed, literally, cheek to jowl, in this tiny room. But who were they? University students. Here to hear Pastor Lamb. And they were excited. To, and he was discipling people. They take discipleship very, very seriously. And we must. And we need to take risks. And we need to hurt and we need to learn from those that are hurting and how their cleverness and how their gospel changes lives and transforms worlds. Whether that will be recaptured in the West or not, I don't know. I have my doubts. I think we're kind of addicted people in the West. Boy, but when I go down to Africa, when I go down into Sudan, when I go into China, when I go elsewhere where the church is suffering, it's growing. Where is the church going fastest in the world? Iran. Iran. Do you know what the fastest growing church is in, in the UK? The Chinese church. Welcome to the Disciple Dilemma. I'm Dennis Allen along with Raymond Monroe. Today we're talking with Dr. Tom Harvey, author, missionary, professor, and the academic dean of the Oxford Center for Mission Studies. The subject is discipling China. What's going on over there? What's Tom been up to? What's he seeing? And there are some amazing facts to find out. So let's get right into the interview. Listen to some of the things happening there, as well as Africa, as well as around the globe when Tom's missionary roots uh, take effect and you hear some of that conversation. Wonderful stuff. Thanks for being with us. Here we go. Dr. Tom Harvey, the Dean for the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, thank you for joining Raymond and I on The Disciple Dilemma. It's great to be on. Folks, just so you know, in full disclosure, both the guys on this podcast are uh, wonderful friends who have had a lot of influence in my life. Um, and I'm just grateful. I'm a little bit nervous because I've got two PhDs on the podcast. and That always makes a very dangerous place for the lower levels like me to inhabit. But we're going to try to survive this with these two guys. Tom, let me ask you this question now. We've we've been thinking about the geopolitical dynamics for a few minutes. You and Raymond have had a, a wonderful conversation on that. I'm going to ask you an unfair question about the typical life of the typical disciple of Christ who is a Chinese citizen in a town in China. Now, they vary. I understand that. But if we were to take a look at my life in America, which you know very well as a believer, and I were to contrast that with some of the tips of the icebergs of the life of a follower of Christ in China. What's that life like right now? Well, one of the things I would say is that it depends on, unlike the United States, if you get a Christian in Iowa, it's not going to be that much different than a Christian in Ohio or one in uh, Tennessee. All right. Their lives are going to be relatively similar, even in California or, or, or the coast. It's not going to be that different. That's not true in China. If you are an urban dweller, there are classes and, and, and slices of life that you will not have access to unless you're part of that. Now, the church used to be, the average believer used to be out in the countryside, and it was in the countryside that the churches grew. That's no longer the case. In the major cities, there are large groups of Christians, and this is what 
uh, concerned Xi Jinping and others within the Chinese Communist Party because it wasn't just peasants or people in the countryside. It was members of their own family who were well-connected and well-heeled who had come to Christ and were spreading Christianity in their own families. Okay. Wow. So if they are an urban city dweller, all right, they will be one highly educated. They will be technically skilled. They will see, they will also have their eye open to how are things developing so that I and my family can get ahead in life. So they'll be part of that scheme. Now, one of the things to realize about Chinese believers, they are, when all the studies we've done, their understandings and support of the nation are no different than the non-Christians. Right? So anything you look at, and they're just as suspicious of the West and the United States as are the everyday citizen. Okay? What they are somewhat frustrated is that the government doesn't trust them more. One of the things when I was over there, I realized is that the typical Protestant view that communism was anti-Christianity. And therefore, if I go to China, I'm trying to convince them that the government and that China is bad and that they need to become Western and Christian. It's just not going to work. To them, communism was a huge step forward from warlords and feudal society. And so and individual people were supposed to be important. They may not live up to that, but at least they that they have that notion now that the individual person has value. Yeah, the, the, the other thing about what was true in China when we were there, and then this is represented the rise of religion, Christianity was part of that, that there are other religions that have waxed over the last 20 years. And the best book to read on that is Ian Johnson's book, The Souls of China, which is an absolutely brilliant book, former uh, uh, China desk uh, editor for New York Times, but he talks about the role of religion in people's lives, and that was to fill a spiritual vacuum that materialism could no longer uh, value. When I talked to Chinese, when I lived there, they would say, you know, we used to have the old ways, and then we had Mao, and then when Mao went, we had nothing, and they would literally describe it as a hole in their heart, and Christianity came in and it was the thing that just gave them hope, gave them a sense of meaning, and Christ in their life filled in that, that gap. That has been a powerful force to the rapid growth of the church in China, and it continues to grow because it gives meaning and purpose. But they still support the nation. They just see that having Christ in your life makes life all the better. And also, and strangely enough, when one of the most interesting dynamics in China has been the rise in the interest of mission. And so you have large urban churches that are keen on, uh, they call it the back to Jerusalem movement and all kinds of other things that are going on. But they see China as the, the last vanguard before Jesus comes back. And this is quite widespread in China. And that this will bring honor to China. You see, so you can see how nationalism, national salvation, and mission all come together in the Chinese mind. Now, that can, that can be Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, but 
for the everyday believer, they see China as a major puzzle piece in terms of, and they're all a bit premillennialist in terms of their orientation. But they see China as the last great wave of mission. Well, Tom, I'm thinking about several different sort of uh, layers of Christianity in China. First, you're the author of the great book, Acquainted with Grief, Wang Min Dao's uh, struggle with house churches in China. There's, There's the idea of the house church. There's the idea of the state church, and then there's the idea of the, I guess, independent church. Could you untangle that a little bit for me and tell me what that is or isn't as differentiators? What's it like and what's it not like? Let's start with Wang Mingda. All right, what happens is, is all Christians are sent out to the countryside in the Great Cultural Revolution. And this this is just horrific for all peoples. But in that time, that's when Christianity actually begins to spread and grow. And small cell groups are formed in the countryside. And many of those people are there in the countryside because they've been forced to go. But when the uh, Cultural Revolution ends, they will come back to the urban centers where their families are at. And those churches start to grow. So that's what Wang Mingdao represented in terms of one of the founders and key persons in the non-state church. And he's seen as an iconic figure to the church as a person who suffered for Christ. Now, that's a very different tale than today, because what happens from the 1980s up to around 2015 is the churches in the urban centers begin to grow. Mm -hmm. And you get a growth of both uh, official churches and unofficial churches, but but it's not 50-50. The unofficial churches and churches independent of government oversight are around 70 to 80% of the Christians in the country, and the and the official church is only around 15, 20% around, all right? So most of the churches are not in, in those. These are independent fellowships. They tend to meet in hotels. They meet in various places. And the period from Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao forward is a period of, of great laxity in terms of control of the church. And so churches are relatively free to move. In fact, Jiang Zemin gives a speech that says, listen, I don't really care. As long as they support the country and they're good people, we will allow them to exist. All right. And they begin to grow and expand and you get uh, the modern urban churches. Now, Xi Jinping in 2015 brings uh, attempts to bring this to an end. Right. So he puts in a whole policy called cynicization. And the policy of cynicization is to force all the believers into the official church or to arrest them. And they have campaigns called reduce to zero, which is to wipe out all independent or what we call house churches or family churches. Right. At that time, also just before that time, you had Whereas Wang Mingdao just wanted to be left alone, in the in the early 2000s, you had church leaders who were in the independent churches who met openly and publicly. And there's one man named Cheng Yi who was in Chengdu, and he was an attorney and a civil rights lawyer who came to Christ, and he began to argue openly that that China needed to change and to become a much more open liberal society with rules of law 
so that uh, and and also you say you have freedom of religion we should be able to operate publicly this began to happen in beijing and elsewhere she puts an, an end to that and with sinicization there are three major changes that he makes the first one is he changes the whole bureaucratic structure of the of, of the church before you had the um uh, three self-patriotic churches, which go back to the 1950s, and these were the official state churches, all right? Mm-hmm. Then you had another group called the CCC, which is the China Christian Council, because there were a lot of people who wouldn't work with the TSPM, or three self-patriotic movement, because it was too t- close to there. So there was an independent or group that was set up that would try to bring people in and did to a certain degree, all right? So you had the CCC, and then you began to have all kinds of overseas connections. So there are all kinds of pastors who would come out to Seoul or to Thailand or to other countries outside of China and have international Christian um, thing uh, gatherings. There were outside groups, mission groups and others that were having influence out of Hong Kong, Singapore into China. So, so C made a massive bureaucratic change, right? And the bureaucratic change was to place all security policy of the churches, not under these little organizations, but under the United Front Work Department. And that was going back to the 1950s. And the United Front Work Department is a security department. And they completely rearranged the bureaucratic structure from a lot of lateral movement and connections around the world to to uh, the spokes of a wheel. Everything goes to the center. Everything goes out to the uh, external. And that now as a church in China, if you're an official church and you're recognized by the state, all right, you have to go up the ladder into the center and down your spoke, but you can't go sideways. You cannot connect with other churches. You cannot do anything in your church without permission. Okay. So that was a bureaucratic. Then they put in a whole bunch of legal restrictions that said you can only meet in official churches. If not, you'll be arrested and imprisoned. And now the final move is going on to bring in the ideological side of cynicization, which is to rewrite passages of scripture and to realign the churches so that ideologically it is the state first and God second. All right. There's actually a Chinese idiom called which means the government rules the church follows. Okay. And now you have posters of Xi Jinping and all these other things. Now, how effective is all this policy? Actually, my view is it's counterintuitive. Okay. For one thing about Chinese, they revere the Bible. The Bible is a holy book to them and much more in a sacred sense than even we in the West treat it. Okay. If you change the words of scripture, it's no longer scripture. And so anyone and so when they tried to get Nanjing Seminary to get involved with the translation, all the older professors backed up and said, I'm not touching this. So they had to get in younger professors to come on in. All right. So so anyone who touches that new Bible is going to get poisoned. Who doesn't have that Bible? The house churches. So they're actually driving people away. All right. 
The second thing they're doing is the state can only exercise ideological control in state churches. So where do the believers go? They go to the independent churches. Right? Now, so the this is only driving people more into the independent churches and 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 once they go into independent it's harder for the government to exercise control. Now, the one thing that China is doing and this happened through COVID and elsewhere, but their use of of um, surveillance and their use of AI is the most powerful in the world in terms of monitoring their people. Sure. Okay. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say you're going to meet with a group of believers and talk about Jesus. Right. Now in the old days, you'd probably go to the most populous part of Beijing where there's all kinds of shops and everything else and restaurants and there's loud chatter. Nobody can hear anything and you can talk about anything you want. Right. Take a look at a security screen that AI is using today in China, okay? It doesn't have a person in front of the monitor. AI is collecting all the data. It is a computer that is processing billions of amounts of data. Under each person that you see walking along the street, there's a series of characters on that person that is describing who this is, what their affiliations are, what their security level is and all that kind of thing. Now you get six people sitting at a restaurant in Beijing who all have uh, and all the points come together and the AI then then signals public security. You've got six people who are part of the legal churches meeting in that restaurant. You can arrest them now. Mm. No human has been involved up to that point of the arrest until the arrest. So, so Tom Tom you had you had mentioned early on before we started that you think the biggest thing we need in the West is a dictator that hates the church, force us <laughs> to force us to force us to really live. And one of the things Dennis and I've talked about about discipleship is often discipleship is seen as just evangelism and apologetics. It's not my core identity. And Christianity really is supposed to be our identity, and the church is supposed to be our community. But but the caricature that Dennis put forward is the church is an institution that I join for the benefits I get from it, not a change in who I am. And you were describing very much the same kind of thing about that. Is it really? So if I was going to ask you the question about identity and community in these um, places where the church is persecuted, I'm assuming you're going to tell me that, yes, everybody sees that their core identity is being a Christian and that their Christian community is really the part of their life that keeps them and gives them hope. Yeah, and and it's, well, the other thing is when you're in those kinds of situations, you see the power of God. Sure. You, when, you, when you're hiding out in some kind of place, and um, I, I remember we once had a woman from Uganda, and she there was a, 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 a professor from Oxford who was giving a talk about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that we ought to uh, see mission in this way. So you didn't want to deal with physical necessities like food and safety. And finally, you only get up to the spiritual when you get up to the top of the pyramid. And until you deal with the bottom, you can't deal with spiritual things. And we have this woman, Barbara uh, Mugambi uh, from Uganda, and she said, Excuse me, Mr. Professor, I have a question. And she goes, he goes, well, what is it? He, she goes, um, have you ever 
seen your children starving? <laughs> and he says, well, no. He said, well, she said, well, I have. And that's when we know it's time to pray. <laughs> and she said, have you ever been in the bush and a man with an AK-47 three feet away? So if you so much as sneeze, you're dead. Have you ever been there? No, I have. And that's when you pray. You see, your pyramid is upside down. <laughs> right? And the poor guy was absolutely dumbfounded. She completely won the debate. All right. Yeah, that wow. spirituality comes in when the material is not fully met. And then when you see God move, you go, wow, he's alive. He's real. I can do amazing things through this God who is. That doesn't make my world perfect. I wish that the dictators would go. But, all right, when you're under that kind of pressure, you begin to see that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's our number one need, is the spiritual dynamic of God who feeds us, who rescues us who sets us in community and allows to address our world as people filled with the spirit of God. And we need to take risks and we need to hurt and we need to learn from those that are hurting and how their cleverness and how their gospel changes lives and transforms worlds. Whether that will be recaptured in the West or not, I don't know. I have my doubts. I think we're kind of addicted people in the West. Boy, but when I go down to Africa, when I go down into Sudan, when I go into China, when I go elsewhere where the church is suffering, it's growing. Where is the church growing fastest in the world? Iran. Wow. Iran. Do you know what the fastest growing church is in, in the UK? The Chinese church. It has grown by uh, almost 150% in the last three years. Right? It's it's exploding here. In fact, I, I work with a Chinese fellowship here, and we have more people attending church than we know, and they're not necessarily Christians who are coming in when they walk in the door. There are people who are leaving Hong Kong. They're, they're overseas students, and the first place they touch, touch base is a church because they don't want to go to bars. They don't want to go to dance halls. They want to go to a place where there's families and where people have strong values and for people who care about their nation and their people and the church is the place to go. You know, one of the things in China is that there have been great discipleship. I mean, um, when I was in Guangzhou, I sat in the church of um, uh, Pastor Lam. Pastor Lam was a large house church in the center of Guangzhou. He had been arrested, prison many years. He was a disciple of Wang Mingdao. And when I went to the church, in, in, it was in this little building, packed, literally, cheek to jowl in this tiny room, but who were they? University students, here to hear Pastor Lamb. And they were excited, to, and he was discipling people. They take discipleship very, very seriously, and we must as well.
while we've been talking, you've seen the OCMS logo with the website, but you're also seeing the cover of Tom's book, Acquainted with Grief, the story of Wang Ming Dao. It's a great book. And if you folks uh, want to see a little bit of the story that Tom constructed to help people get this, go out and find it. It's uh, not in print right now, but there, there are some available, right, Tom? Yeah, well, they're going up in price, which means there's demand out there. For, and, you know, contact Baker Books and tell them to reprint it because I think it's still a really uh, important book. I am in the process of writing a couple more works. And once I get out of the deanship, I'm going to spend time on them. But one is to look at the changing shape of ideology, uh, ideology and legal uh, writ in China. And this is with Carl Schmitz. Uh, and that side, but also write a whole book on this whole policy of sinicization and all its impacts across the board. So those are two works that should be coming out in the next couple of years. Well, we'll look forward to interviewing you about those as they come out and put that on the Disciple Dilemma too. And since you raised this, we've got to stick this in there and we'll find places to be able to feed the system with this. What in the world are you doing talking about Carl Schmidt when we're talking about China? Come on, man. This guy, this guy's a German. What, what does he have to do with China? Well, what happened was, as I was doing a lot of research on China, and all of a sudden his name started to appear everywhere. It was being written by key legal writers in Beijing University, elsewhere. The person who was head of the security policy in terms of Hong Kong and the in response to the uh, security law that was, that's now been imposed on Hong Kong, a Carl Schmitz scholar, right? And the more I looked, the deeper it got, all right? And that there's a, that, his work in terms he was a he was a a, a german leading uh, legal scholar in the 1930s and he became one of the key reichskanzler of the third reich and he argued that totalitarianism and the setting aside of constitutional law to get at one's enemies was the way forward because um democracy and representative governments uh were just too messy to get anything really done Strangely enough, you will find people reading Carl Schmidt around the world, but it's not good stuff. It's stuff that leads to um, uh, declaring people enemies and eliminating them. I don't think this is anything that Christians can live with or be part of in a long time, but it's very popular in a lot of circles and even being read in the United States by some very powerful figures on both sides of the political spectrum. So, And this colors Xi Jinping thought? Um, yeah, I think uh, Xi Jinping, uh, it's called Fajr Sushan, all right, a, a thought on law, I think is deeply informed by uh, Carl Schmitt. Tom, thank you for joining us today on The Disciple Dilemma. Well, thank you, Dennis. It's an honor to be here and, and good to meet you, Raymond, and, and uh, just blessings as we go forward. Yeah, it's great. Great fun. It's been great fun talking to you. Really interested in the things you said and a really compelling um, push for discipleship as being who we are. Would you help the church think more about discipleship? Would you help us get the conversation started to talk about the biblical discipleship Jesus gave us? Please follow us. Our website, www.thediscipledilemma.com. You can find us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and all the RSS feeds. If you'd follow or like us, you'll help us get leverage in the digital marketplace to talk about the fact that discipleship needs to be talked about. And as always, folks, thanks for listening.